Welcome to Culture Camp. On today's episode, Sean, Gavin, and I try something new. Instead of just complaining about how things are, we decided to share some of our favorite art with you, the audience. We're also testing out a visual medium on YouTube and Rumble, so be sure to smash that like button as well as subscribe. Sean gets to tell us about his love for metal album covers, Gavin describes a Francisco de Goya painting, and I fumble through learning video editing. You can email us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-U-R-E-K-A-M-P dot cast at gmail.com to send comments, questions, or topic ideas. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and now on YouTube and Rumble, as well as on Twitter at CultureCampCast and on Minds.com at CultureCamp. So, uh, welcome back to Culture Camp. This is Sean. I'm here with Gavin and Tom. And after much pondering as to what uh, we should do for an episode, the second episode of ours, which is predicated around art, we came across the promising theme, an unusually positive theme, uh, of being optimistic about art. Uh, I really enjoyed doing the aesthetics and beauty episode. Uh, Gavin and I both really enjoyed doing that, but it was mostly just complaining about art that we didn't like. Uh, inevitably during this episode, we're going to do a lot of discussion about the theory of art. What is the purpose of art? Uh, but mostly now that this is our first episode where we're utilizing a visual medium. So for those of you on Spotify, we're going to describe and we're going to give the author and we're going to give the name of the work. But for those of you on YouTube, finally, you can uh, not watch us, but you can watch the pictures that we're going to put up. Uh, we kind of had this idea where we were going to send in roughly about 20 pictures that we all liked. Uh, I picked 11 of these and Tom picked some. And we just wanted to look at art that we enjoyed I, instead of sitting there and running down uh, contemporary art. Inevitably, don't worry, uh, our usual whinging about the issues of contemporary art will come up again, I suppose. Uh, I'll preface this with this. Something that I was talking with uh, Gavin about the show is whenever we had a discussion about what we should cover in this episode uh, as to what art post-1945 uh, do I actually like? And we definitely have some classical pictures on there. That's from Tom. Tom didn't get the 45 rule ahead of time, uh, but I did. So uh, in looking at that art, I was kind of dismayed because I've been to a lot of art galleries. Uh, I've been to a lot of museums. I've been to like Museum of Modern Art in New York, and I've uh, I've been to like Kelvin Grove in Glasgow. And the simple fact is there's not a lot of stuff hanging in modern museums today that I actually like. And I think that's because I'm absolutely against the uh, hegemonic art gallery culture, which is almost uniformly suffering from a hipster effect of anti-traditionalism, anti-clericalism, sexual libertinism, uh, what Roger Scruton would call a flight into ugliness. Uh, it has a bunch of the presuppositions of contemporary art, which is that all materials can be used as art, right? So you don't have to just do oil painting. You can scrumble up like... Uh, uh, pillowcase and tie it to a fish string and technically that's art uh, performance art is valid and art is the instanti instantiation of an idea so concept art uh, while some of those things can be fine I disagree with all the isms that I listed and so I found that in order to find art that I actually liked post-1945 that I had to leave the confines of institutionalized art 
uh, and the the houses of the great and the good and the people who actually professionally like art for a living. And I had to think about what art do I interact with on a daily basis that really touches me and I like. And a lot of it came from the music industry. So uh, a lot of the metal bands I listen to actually employ some incredible professional artists that are making art that is on par with any of the classical authors that I absolutely love. Uh, and there are plenty of modern uh, artists that we're going to get to. Uh, I just wanted to note that none of these are are or very few of them, rather, are going to be found within what I'll call the art institution. Uh, so without any further ado, unless Gavin, do you have anything to add or Tom? I would just say that, like I like you said, I did not get the pre-1945 or post-1945 memo. So all of my submissions are in fact usually hanging in galleries. I'd, I'd say what, what I would add to that is that, you know, we really put into into words something that that we discussed earlier that I I find very interesting about this. This is when we're looking at paintings and we're looking at visual art, that there is such a, a paucity of things from, from the post-war period that I really like. And I, cause you said send in art and I was just like, well, most of the things I like are like genre art or it's me defending Norman Rockwell because, you know, who was uh, something of a, you know, looked down upon in the art world, but people have had to admit that he, you know, is actually quite good at what he does, you know? Um, but even that it's, it's more of me saying defending somebody who's, who's disliked rather than putting it forward as a, as a purely positive, I like this kind of thing. And I would say that, that what's interesting about that to me is the contrast between that and other genres of art. I can think of a lot of, you know, um, literary fiction that I like from the post-1945 period. Um, and I can think of a lot of, you know, film that's aimed at a, uh, you know, aesthetic audience, right? At a, at an art, art oriented audience, not just like a, you know, popular films, not just popular art, uh, that I really like. And it's strange to me that, that visual art in particular has gone in this direction. Right. You, I mean, across all media, you really get this phenomenon of the, the art that the critics like and the art that the audience like, uh, for mm -hmm. one reason or another, are almost uh, greatly in disagreement with each other. I find mm -hmm. this true in movies. I find it true in literature. And I definitely find it true in visual art. Uh, and there's about a million reasons for that. But yeah, I but it's a lot further apart for me in the visual space than it is in those other spaces. And I think that's very I think that's very interesting. Right. Well, in the movie space for me, it's kind of like uh, I tell people that whenever I go and uh, or it, OK, so back in the day, whenever you had to get DVDs uh, and I was looking through the store, if I saw a whole bunch of like laurel wreaths on the cover of a movie, I yeah. automatically knew that I didn't want to watch it and that it was going to be yeah. hella, hella boring <laughs> because I'm an absolute Philistine. And the visual art that we are about to show you all is definitely going to show you what a Philistine I am. And I will do my best to justify that Philistinism. So let's dive in. Uh, let's dive let's, in. Let's oh, oh boy. And it starts with mine. Uh, so this is the, like I said, about half of these come from metal album covers. Uh, and it's really funny to me how I've been, I've appreciated uh, metal album art 
for years, but I know, uh, but never more than in preparing for this episode. Uh, so especially in recent years, uh, big companies like Metal Blade Records have hired professional artists to do uh, album work for their various bands. And I think probably the most prominent one is this guy below, uh, Elrond Counter. He's uh, a Berlin-based uh, Israeli artist, and he's done countless if you go google him right now you will see the corpus of his work it's very metal it's very dark uh this one particularly i really love this is off the album v uh from havoc uh which has very kaczynski s themes it's a very uh, so havoc is sort of an uh infamously uh uh anti-technology uh libertarian neo-thrash band and uh, my favorite song off that album, by the way, is called Betrayed by Technology, which absolutely fits with what's going on in this picture here. Uh, what I really love about it is that so Elrond Cantor is he's using a lot of techniques that you see in contemporary art. Like he's uh, he's using a lot of like uh, messy shapes and some body horror and he's using uh, scrumbling very heavily. Uh, scrumbling, by the way, is where you use this. It's this method where you use the paintbrush to scrape oil in this very heavy direction. That's what's going on over his right eye up to his hair and all over his body. Now, Sean, why don't you describe what you see in this picture? Because I think you're seeing even more things than I am because of your, your familiarity with, with painting itself. Well, okay. So first of all, uh, the most important thing here is like, once again, the scrumbling going on is that, so he obviously has the classical skill to make a well-structured face uh, as somebody who's an incredibly terrible uh, amateur artist myself. Uh, learning to draw the human face well is very, very, very difficult. He obviously has the skill to do that, but he's not just using his classical skill. He's also using all these other sort of rogue techniques like scrumbling to show a man being torsioned apart. So it's like if you look at his hands and you can see this almost Terminator-esque skeleton coming out of the back uh of his left hand and he has all these growths on him and he's being torsioned apart. And the scrumbling is sort of showing these incredible uh, body horror disruptions in his flesh. The look on mm -hmm. his face, which is well-drawn is a look of horror to me. It's saying, Oh God, it's too late. What if I, what have I done? The machine has already been integrated into him. And the reason mm -hmm. why I bring up the, the name of the third song on the track betrayed by technology is because I think this perfectly fits that theme yeah it, to me it looks like he's he's looking up at all of these screens it reminds me of like the movie minority report where you have all of these different displays that are floating in a in a single large display but the way that he's being melted away it looks like looks like decay he's covered in mushrooms right and fungus that's that's eating him uh, apart but he also has, you know, almost like a, a classic look on his face, you know, that you'd see in in earlier paintings where he's he's contemplating God or something like that or or, uh, you know, contemplating may, maybe not God, but something that's sublime and terrifying. Right. And and I and so even as he's looking up at these screens and just melting away in an organic way, it's like the the. The, the contrast between the, the, the technology and the, the physical uh, decay is really striking. I would also like to note that uh, below in the background, you can see what seems to be, I mean, I guess you could say it's a relatively nice but simple landscape. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you have this technological display, this white and blue cube covered in screens bearing over it. And, you know, he's sort of, it. The, what, what I like about this is even if I didn't know 
uh, Havoc's thematic content and how much they distrust the forward march of technology. This picture would convey that readily and easily. It's very reasonable. It's re- it's very readable, but it's not in your face. Yeah. And it well, really mo- conveys the despair, which is what I like. I think there are multiple interpretations of it, too, because you could say he's he's almost looking up. Like, you take the interpretation where he's looking up the technology as if it were God, and yet he's still dying and falling apart right because it it shows the the natural a natural and organic process of decay overtaking him right in in a really rapid fashion and so it's almost like the technology if he's seeing it as as a god is not saving him right that is a that's a better way to read the mushrooms and the decay than i had before i i i like that interpretation i think there's also an interpretation where the technology is actually killing him um, you know, I, I think that's a read too. You know, both of those are betrayals, but um, but you know, that's they're they're somewhat different different reads, but uh, or or just you know the 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 machinery failing to take him out of his nature, right? Like if 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 religion promises to save you from your fallen nature, right? At least in Christian religion, I realize this is a Jewish artist. But, uh, you know, if, if, uh, you know, uh, technology is supposed to say, or God is some, in somehow, some way supposed to save you from your fallen nature, clearly whatever technology this man has set up as his God has failed him, whether it is, it is killing him or it's just failing to save him. Right. And he's not even a complete person. Cause if you look in the middle of his face, you can see all the way through to the blue background. Mm-hmm. Which I really like because it conveys this idea that he's becoming uh, an image rather than an actual, like three D, you know, for lack of a better term, fleshed out person. Right. Everything sort of visually communicates uh, that he's being uh, dissolved away and disintegrated, like in the most literal yeah. sense. So it's almost as if, while you know, you look at the lower portions of his body and they're they're decaying and falling apart, right? According to a physical scheme. His head's been bored through, and it doesn't even look like something that would be done by, you know, as much by an organic process. Like a process of decay could do that to you, right? So you could read it that way, but it's also, you know, so rapid and goes through the, like, his brain and his, you know, uh, so quickly that it's it's almost like the technology is hollowing out his mind from the inside. Well, right? and that's the, so the scrumbling technique is very emotional. It's very visceral. It's mm-hmm. very reminiscent. Uh, there are some 18th, there are some, sorry, there are some 19th century impressionists mm-hmm. who make heavy use of it. And it's meant, uh, whenever used properly, it can indicate like perturbation. Yeah. So I think, I think, so once again, I've said it a million times. I also just love that word scrumbling. I think he's made maximal use of it here. So yeah, the, the texturing is amazing. The, the way that the, the, the texture on the face, you know, it looks like he's being stripped away. And is inhuman, but also kind of looks like the tendons or muscles that you'd see underneath the face uh, is is extremely well done. And it kind of it kind of, you know, bends the line between this is this man's anatomy being revealed and this is his anatomy turning into something like a bunch of, you know, dried up leaves that are just falling off. Right. Right. So, I mean, that's I I love this piece. I think it's it's great. <laughs> like, but the, yes, I would definitely put this on my wall. I know a lot of people wouldn't, but I like really weird stuff. And I think uh, so. Anyways, this uh, the reason I wouldn't put this on my wall is I have kids, right. and this is not yeah. And but but you know, just just from a 
that standpoint, it's it's not a, a work for children to see, really. See, like I'm going for like an exotic man living in a castle by himself, and I feel like yeah. this this is a good wall piece for that. Yeah, aesthetic. Um, I guess you know the the question I would ask is because we were you know talking about the the difference between a piece of art like this and then uh, you know because you, you could call this genre art right because it's on a metal album cover right and that almost definitionally makes it genre art but like what's the difference between this and something that you would actually see in a museum right like but thematically the label of what, genre art you you think so yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I've seen, uh, you know, even going around places like the Kelvin Grove and like going through wings mm -hmm. of, uh, and uh, going through there, you see stuff that looks like this. It's absolutely skill wise. It's absolutely on par. It mm -hmm. has it has messaging that is just as deep in anything in like uh, English socialist realism, mm -hmm. like Scottish like expressionism. It's just mm -hmm. on a, it's on a it's on a metal album cover, uh, which you know I assume the sort of people who run galleries are listening to stuff that's on Pitchfork. So, <laughs> so do, do you think or care about Avic? Let me let me ask you this this question that kind of challenges that view is like, do you think that they would say that modern art critics would say that this painting is too on the nose uh, to to be included in a gallery? And if so, is it more on the nose than than, you know, say a, a piece of political art that you'd see in the Musée d'Orsay from the 19th century? What do you think? I really think it would depend on the goal of the gallery. So I think mm -hmm. there are some modern galleries that would uh, happily display this. Mm -hmm. um, I don't. I don't think they. You know. Uh, I think this would be an exception rather than the rule. The rule being uh, black and white photograph of a woman staring off into the distance pensively, number five million two hundred thousand twenty nine or something. Because mm -hmm. uh, I've seen stuff like this. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be like they would never put it up. Uh, I do think some of them would say it's too on the nose, right? Uh, given yeah. what you, given what you sort of see uh, in places like the Tate Modern, this is too yeah. on the nose. Yeah. Do you think that if you removed the screens from it, you removed this sort of techno technological element from it, and so that it was much more ambiguous? Do you think it would pivot it more toward toward what you would see in an, in a modern museum? No, I still think it has far too much skill. <laughs> so I'm just being as much of a jerk as possible. Well, yeah, but what? But I mean, in all serious that that in all seriousness, though, I I'm I'm asking that question because I am I'm asserting that I think they would want to see more ambiguity. So no, no, no. Like, okay, I don't want to shortchange uh, all of like modern art galleries. Like I said, mm -hmm. there are plenty of art galleries that would display this picture, but the really really big ones like the Tate Modern are mm -hmm. much larger on uh contemporary art they're much bigger right. on weird conceptual art and the like to have a painting that you know you know not to be aspersive or anything but to have a painting like this which is so well done and so detailed and has such a clear message i really do think it's too on the nose to be in most of the tate modern right mm -hmm. yeah but of course that that those are devoted specifically to contemporary art so right that's uh, like so, if there is a gallery that would play this, it's not going to be one of the big ones that people know. Yeah. So, uh, so now, what... well, here's the thing though: is Elron Cantor is a well-known artist, and he actually does shows. Like his art gets shown in galleries. Yeah. This is just this is just never going to reach the level of like uh, this is never going to reach the level a level of of modern art to be in a place like 
MoMA, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's even in, in such a wildly different genre that they would never think of doing so. Yeah. Now, Mark Rothko, on the other hand. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. We have an example of Rothko. Outstanding. All right. What do we what do we have next? Yeah, let's see another one that that y'all really like. Oh, I think my favorite version of this picture was the uh, corporate Memphis version of it. Yeah, I still have that on my phone. (laughs) Yeah, it's somehow it manages to be so much worse than like this, just because it's such a uh, like this is horrifying and meant to be horrifying and like is just really appalling to look at. So uh, for especially the, uh, when you for the audio listeners, uh, which one of you wants to describe Saturn devouring his son by Francisco de Goya? Um, so. So Saturn devouring his son is a picture of the god Saturn, right, from Greek mythology, who ate all of his children so that to try and keep them from overthrowing him. Um, and. Uh, in in mythology, I think they actually, you know, they like survive in some way because they're gods. But this portrays him as like a, a wide eyed, horrified looking man with a beard and wild hair who's kneeling over. You know, it's it's done in very dark colors. It's brown and gray against black. Uh, and he's holding like a, a small child, like probably five ish years old and uh is consuming him like his his legs are hanging limply down the the saturn is holding him around the torso and uh he's he's eaten off his head and one of his arms and has another one of his arms shoved into his mouth and uh it's it's absolutely horrifying and repugnant i remember the first time i saw this like in a probably in like a textbook in in high school and just being like you know, feeling physical revulsion in class and, and being like, why would anyone ever paint this? Um, uh, but I mean, like, it's hard to argue with the emotional impact of it. It's well, that's the thing is like, it shows some, it's, it's a repugnant scene, Mm -hmm. but it is a well-crafted repugnance because Mm -hmm. I see, I can understand every emotion going on here. Uh, like, you know, the adult body being consumed is, is lifeless which is clear from like the position of the legs and uh mm-hmm. there's been a lot of it god now i'm trying to summon art classes that i haven't taken in like a decade uh there's been a lot of interpretive work done on like this painting on whether or not it's uh like the the conflict between if he's talking about the conflict in spain that was going on at the time uh because this is done in like 1823 or something mm-hmm. or if, or if he's talking about like the conflict between uh, old age and youth or if he's just merely trying to portray a badass myth uh yeah but what I mean, I, however he's portraying it it's well-crafted repugnance yeah well and I, one thing i like about this the look on saturn's face in this one it's 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 hard to to maintain it it's almost hard to maintain eye contact with the the character in this just they're because insane the, eyes Absolutely. yeah they're insane eyes oh. but they're and they're obviously suffering and the question is like why right like is is this character just mad has he been driven insane was he already in is he doing this because he was insane right has he been driven insane by the act like is he horrified by what he's doing right now right and it's interesting cuz his his mouth like there's no teeth in his mouth it's just a gaping hole that he's shoving an arm into it's a gaping black hole 
that's that's almost connected in, in at one point by like a vertical line with with one of his eyes like a vertical line of black and it's just like you know the the madness in it has this sort of ambiguity of madness like did did the fear of being overthrown by his own children cause him to to eat them and as a result of that he's been been driven to this suffering madness or was he already there you know and and almost does it matter at this point like uh it's it's an upsetting thing to 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 look at uh because just because of the raw horror on his face right like even if you didn't know what he was doing this it, it would be uh horrifying right to to look at it you can you can cover the part that's the gory corpse and look at the the eyes and just read absolute terror and horror in, into them right right excellent excellent picture uh, excellent painting i i I, I don't, you know, what more critique can I offer? It's Francisco de Goya. You know, he's, and, and, I think he's called one of the last old masters because he trained, uh, like he trained like the old masters, like Michelangelo. He comes significantly afterwards, but uh, he had mm-hmm. all the training. And, and in pictures like this, he obviously puts that skill to use, but he's also using a lot of like the new uh, approaches to expression. Mm-hmm that are happening in the 1820s. One sec. I need to actually look up when this painting is being made. Cause I keep saying uh, it was, it was a combination of, it, it was painted over uh, a period of years beginning in 1819 to 1823 dead in the middle. Cause I'm a genius. Sorry. Well, and, and it's important to note that this is not the only painting in this series. There were actually something, I believe like six, seven that were all scenes from this same myth cycle of Saturn devouring uh, his children over the course of however many, uh, you know, paintings that were originally done on the walls of his, the house he was living in and were later transferred to canvas. Yeah. Well, and a lot of them are not like they're, they're like they're 14 that are called the black paintings. Right. And a lot of them are like, he has a Judith and Hilarphonies and, and some other other things and and this is the the one that's that's like got the uh very you know mythological component to it others are more like a witch's sabbath and pilgrimages and people fighting and and but they're all kind of kind of disturbing in this way right um and and it is but it is interesting to see the use of color in this right because the, like 1823 like if you look at the French paintings that you're seeing in this period, um, especially mythological paintings, they are so, you know, they're full of light, right? And and this is like neoclassicism is is um, still a you know a big deal at this point, uh, or during his life, uh, and then romanticism uh, is is coming into vogue, and uh, you know. It's, to to see something like this in this time period you know even if it wasn't originally done for public display is uh is really amazing though i i think maybe this is closer to what some other spanish painters were producing at the time when i think of like velasquez and things like that well as a side note he was uh, uh he was not unfamiliar with portraying mental illness Mm-hmm. Uh, like earlier in his life, uh, he had worries uh, that he was losing his mind. Uh, he has a famous painting. I'm actually looking at it over on my other monitor. It's called Lunat- uh, Lunatics in the Yard. Yeah. 
uh, uh, or sorry, yard, I'm sorry, yard with lunatics. And it was like, as soon as I saw this picture, as soon as you brought up uh, uh, his insane eyes, it made me think of this other painting that if you, if you go look up yard with lunatics, uh, two of the figures have like the same look in their eyes. And it's just a very, it's a very unique expression in, mm-hmm. in the Goya paintings. So pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I uh, messed up there. I wasn't talking about uh, Velasquez. I'm, I'm talking, I'm thinking of a different painter who uses uh, this, this kind of, um, uh, there's a lot of uh, darkness in his paintings. It's from around the time that I can't recall his name. So. Right. Well, let's go on to the next one. What do we got? Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, so one of my choices, uh, I picked uh, three of the artists within my choices for this podcast are based on uh, basically comic book artists, because if I didn't find the art that I liked within heavy metal, I found it quite literally the heavy metal magazine, but also heavy metal album work. I found it in comic artists and uh, this is, so this is big snake by Frank Frazetta. What a name. Uh, it Frank Frazetta is, I think he's probably like the, one of the OG like comic artists. So he worked a lot. He and uh, Luis Royo worked a lot on early uh, Conan, like Conan, the barbarian. Mm-hmm. Uh here. Frank, Fra- yeah. Frank Frazetta's work was used uh if you've ever seen ralph bakshi's fire and ice it's like this medieval sword and not medieval it's a sword and sorcery epic in the vein of conan the barbarian and it uses a lot of uh rotoscoping which bakshi loved you know rotoscoping was all the rage especially back in the 60s and 70s and frank frazetta did a lot of uh the fill-in work for the rotoscoping but frank frazetta is famous for his portrayal of sword and sorcery scenes. And he is almost, he is also famous for his incredible anatomy drawing. If you get into drawing the human body, you will eventually copy a Frank Frazetta because he is so incredibly good at it. Uh, And I learned, I learned to draw anatomy pretty well just from copying Frank Frazetta. So it's like, if you can see this, uh, this Conan figure, this Conan, not Conan figure is in some sort of dungeon uh, while orcs are watching him about to get devoured by this huge snake. And you can see like every, like his traps and his rhomboids and his triceps, like every single muscle he has in it is insanely detailed. Mm-hmm. He's facing away from you. He's on top of the snake and he's, his wrists are chained to the floor. And so that's why the, the, the muscles are standing out is because he's clearly straining against these uh restraints trying to pull them out so as this snake coils up to strike at him and the you know the snake's head is bigger than his it's gigantic like i said he's on the back of it all right the uh so frank frazetta is so not only is he famous for portraying really buff men but he's also famous for portraying uh incredibly attractive women uh, and mm-hmm. whenever, we get to, whenever we get to Luis Royo, inevitably you're going to see something looking like that. I don't have any of uh, Frank Frazetta's famous women on here, but Frank Frazetta, I think, is really somebody's going to correct me on this. Frank Frazetta is really the beginning of these comic book style artists that cover themes and portray people in such a way that people within the like institutionalized art world call sophomoric or immature. And, you know, 
I've known plenty of people in university and I've hung out in art galleries and they'll ask me who my favorite artists are. And I always bring up like Frank Frazetta and it's because Frank Frazetta taught me so much about drawing, especially drawing the human form. And the reaction I always get is this like eye roll of, you know, Oh, all the men are really buff and all the women are really hot and they cover these really sophomoric themes. And I'm like, I don't know a heroic guy doing heroic stuff, like fighting a snake while being like chained to the ground in front of a bunch of orcs is badass. And at this point, I'm not really sure if I care if it's immature. I don't really even know if it is immature to be honest with you. That's an interesting question. Is it any more immature than some of the art you could walk in and see, like, a pile of candies that are meant to represent the memories of a person who died that you take with you? Well, it's like, oh, okay, is is it any less immature and edgy? Or is it any more immature and edgy than, like, Andre Serrano uh, dunking a crucifix in a vat of piss? That's basically a 14-year-old's take on religion, but that gets to be uh, praised within, like... uh, uh, the incredibly like pro blasphemy like establishment sort of art institution, and then stuff like Frazetta uh, gets pissed on, uh, for lack of a better word, for being immature. I just don't buy the aspersion anymore. Yeah, I I guess what I would say is that like again, you know, I I think of this as being like a you know genre image, which I have no problem with. Right? I think that that you know genre images and genre fiction. You know, I enjoy them. Like, clearly, I'm a huge science fiction fan. Um, but I I think the the exact way in which our society regards some things as mature versus immature uh, is kind of off, right? Like, if I were going to say that this is immature in comparison to to some things because it's a hero fantasy and everything, there are lots of things that the people who you say are scoffing at it for being immature that I would consider to be immature as well, right? Um, I guess a good example of this, maybe not in the visual arts world, but it's kind of like the modern critical reception to uh, uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, right, who they many people see as like a uh, an example of poetry yeah well naive victorian optimism right right as if as if uh you know the the aspect of of his poetry that uh that looks optimistically and looks well upon the world is the thing that makes it immature and i don't think that that kind of um the the kind of i i I see the kind of pessimism that looks upon his work in that fashion as being itself immature. So it's almost the, the entire flip of that. Right. Um, this kind of goes back to the, the same question I asked earlier about, you know, thematically, what is it about that other painting? And then what is it about this? That would mean that it can't be, uh, uh, you know, placed into a, uh, a museum. What is it that would, that makes this genre art or popular art, as opposed to the kind of fine art that you would get there. Well, and, are you asking me? Because I th- I think I have an answer. Yeah, I, I mean that's that is the same. That's probably my same question for every piece of of genre art. You can you can. Oh, okay, uh, okay. What's your idea? No, you can answer it about that this if you want to. 
Uh, well, you for, this, I th- for this, I think it explicitly has to do with, so first of all, it has to do with the context, right? Like Frank Frazetta is a, a comic book artist and, and uh, for one reason or another, like comic book art doesn't get to be fine art. But beyond that, you have ideology where mm-hmm. Frank Frazetta and his portrayal of this Conan like character, this is sort of like classical heroism, right? And that's what Conan the Barbarian sword and sorcery stuff is big, mm-hmm. buff, long haired barbarian dude. Uh, saving the really hot girl, fighting the really big monster. And for thousands of years, that narrative has been compelling until you get to the modern day. And if you look at institutionalized art, and whenever I say that, I mean everything from big name art galleries all the way to the funding projects of the National Endowment for the Arts. Nowhere in those galleries, right in if you find one, do you find compelling classical hero narratives? If you find a hero narrative, it's going to be replete with like the ethos of the day. So it's like uh, the National Endowment for the Arts has this project called Big Read where they fund kids to go like, or where they fund people to go like read uh, books. And their books are either uh, centered around social justice or they're centered around like Circe by like Madeline Miller, which is a retelling of the Odyssey, but from the point of view of Circe. And the reason she turned all those sailors into pigs is because she was raped, right? So what I'm saying is that in institutionalized art, they view this like this thing that Frazetta is portraying. This is tired. It represents an old patriarchal order. Uh, this is sort of like a classic hero narrative. And we're not having any of that because we're much more concerned with telling the stories of people that we view as marginalized. We're not interested in it. I, I think on top of being immature, this would be called like almost sort of like a male power fantasy, mm-hmm. which, yeah. uh, which now comes but, to think of it, I think that's the exact terminology that I've heard used. Yeah. Well, and so something I'd ask in relation to that is like, so, so this sort of fantasy picture is very similar to pictures that you would see that represent like classical or mythological subjects. Right. And in museums around the world, there are a lot of pictures of classical and mythological subjects, right? Like, uh, you know, you can, you can see numerous depictions of, of Heracles and things like that in, uh, European museums, right? Again, neoclassicism will contain things like this and other ancient heroes. Right. The the description you give of, you know, buff guy goes out and, and, you know, kills a bunch of monsters and saves hot women. You know, that's like almost exactly, you know, what some of these people like Theseus do. Right. Go, go along, kill a bunch of monsters, you know, uh, when the girl, though, of course, in Theseus case, he then abandons the girl and she kills their children and kills herself in the case of Medea. But you... You know, the the question then becomes, all right, given that those are great works of art and and leaving aside technical aspects for the moment, just looking at things thematically. Yeah. What is it about, you know, are, are those classical artworks or neoclassical artworks that portray those things still great art or are they just of historical interest? Right. Uh, and, I, think, I think a lot of people that are. uh ideologically infested within what I keep calling institutionalized <laughs> art. Well, no, absolutely. There is absolutely an ideological uniformity within art spaces. And I think anybody yeah. who interacted with them for more than five minutes, I th- they would even, they would even tell themselves that they're not very ideologically diverse. I think that they would say it's much more of historical interest, right? Because mm-hmm. once again, for them, they buy into a theory of art, by the way, and their theory mm-hmm. of art is one of the ones that I lined out 
that art is for the purpose of liberation and pushing the culture to a preferable ends. And mm-hmm. Conan could be argued to just be Robert Howard retelling Hercules, mm-hmm. which doesn't do anything to change the position of women in society. And therefore it might be of historical interest, but as far as the main aim, which is the pushing of the culture in a preferable direction, it does nothing but solidify old male ideas to power. I think that's probably what somebody in that space would say. Well, and one of the things that's interesting about that is if you look at, at what Conan says about himself, and I'm not well read in Conan the Barbarian, you know, but, you know, he says that he, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, plow, right? He doesn't farm. He doesn't work, basically. He, he's, you know, he, uh, he's out there with his sword winning his, his living that way, right? So there is something, about this that you know conan if you read him that way is a male power fantasy but of course the power fantasy is is escaping the economic system there's also there's this reading that's that's actually uh much closer to what they think but i don't think that they'd like it because uh or maybe some of them would but i i don't know that uh many of them would like it because it is expressed in this way where it's like yeah i don't i don't really work because i'm strong Right. The masculine and, urge to escape society and fight giant snakes. Yep. You know how long you can eat off a giant snake? Probably for one. the time. Put a skewer yeah. in, put them over a rotisserie, it'll be good. Yeah. You gotta you gotta it it's curing the meat quickly enough that's the problem, right? And 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 preserving it in that way if you really want to get everything out of it. It's like playing um uh Oregon Trail. Where you you know you shoot eight hundred pounds of meat and you can only carry four hundred back to the wagon. It's that kind of problem. All right, let's see what we have next. <laughs> what do we got, Tom? Ah, yeah, I, I didn't even pick this one, but it's my favorite one on this entire list. Tom, take it away. Dad, Gavin, take it away. Whoever. Well, actually, this one you reminded me of it, Sean. We were out. Um... I must have because I'm obsessed with this painting. <laughs> I don't remember what it was that got us onto this topic, but uh, you brought up the Cadavers uh, Synod, which a little bit of historical background. Um, There was a pope that, for lack of a better term, and to summarize very quickly, was naughty. And after he died, he was put on trial um, and then reburied. And then he was dug up again and put on trial again excommunicated and then i if i remember correctly uh he was thrown into the river but this painting is a uh it's an image from that second trial where you have this corpse dressed in papal finery sitting on a on the on a chair on a chair in basically a courtroom and a one of the cardinals is pointing a very accusatory finger at him with all of the other bishops and cardinals behind him and the colors in this are just absolutely gorgeous. The mm-hmm. you can see the gold brocade on this papal finery. You can see uh, the red and the carpet and the gold and the the censer um, uh, as it's you know putting out uh, incense. And the corpse itself almost looks you know tired with the whole thing. I I, I realize that's kind of a strange way to describe it, but. It's sitting yeah, it, there. Yeah, go ahead, Gavin. 
it's 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 sitting there, you know, with this kind of it's head leaned back in this kind of vacant expression, right? Because uh, they've they've managed to put it in the most, I guess, dignified pose they can, given that it's a desiccated corpse. But yeah, I love the the detail of the sensor because, I mean, no matter how dried out this corpse was, what must this have smelled like? Also, it's uh, so seven months is was like uh, six to seven months is how long that he was buried before he was exhumed. I don't know like what sort of the rate of decay of the human body is, but that's this guy Formosa. He gets uh, exhumed seven months later and the guy accusing him, uh, Stephen the sixth is accusing him of perjury of having accessed the papacy wrong. Oh. That's but kind of seven months. Stephen, of stink. Is that Stephen the sixth as in, uh, Borgia Pope? Because I remember the Borgia Pope was the No, 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 no this is much earlier. This is way before that. 9th century. Yeah. Yeah. This but is, either, yeah. either way, uh, I know that Sean has opinions on this because he, uh, we were actually out eating, um, I believe it was either Nepalese or something or uh, Tibetan food. And Sean waxed quite poetic on the entire topic of this. Did I? You did, because you explained that this was, A, that's why I put it in here, because you said it was your favorite painting, or one of your favorite paintings, and you were discussing it, and how just absolutely wacky it was, and that more people needed to see this painting just to be exposed to the wacky history behind it. I'm kind of surprised I did, because I don't know too much about the historical context behind this. I bring it up whenever I teach class, but it's basically, uh, like I said, Stephen VI. So he's not actually the guy that succeeds uh, Formosus. That's uh, Boniface VI, which is his papal name. I don't know what his actual name is. But basically, he's accusing him of perjury. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm not going to go into the details of that, because I'm going to look real stupid. And I'm going to say a bunch (laughs) of... I'm going to say a bunch of wrong stuff, but uh, look at pretty picture. It also looks super metal. Yeah, yeah this, it I, does. The the thing, like Tom said, that really stands out about this is just you look at the clothing on both of these figures, right? The 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 gold and red for the the Pope with a little bit of like turquoise to gray, and then for the accuser, it's gold and red as well with with green, and just the contrast there between that and the fact that it is a corpse and and just this this husk uh and the way that he manages to divide those two uh really you know impressively decked out figures right with uh by the the lawyer i presume this guy is the lawyer for the pope if he's not the the judge um in the you know the court official whoever it is in the middle who's just all in black right and so it it manages to divide the painting between the two of them and the the contrast on either side of him in these figures between the one who is, you know, in the midst of dramatic action and the one who is just uh, completely still because he's he's dead, essentially, you know, because he's dead. Uh, uh, just really the 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 way the costumes bring it all together. But then the the motion and that central figure uh, pull things apart really uh, just formally work so well in this picture. It's, it's one of the reasons it's great. I would like to say also, by the way, the cloth work on his cloak, mm-hmm. the red cloth work is divine. That's I can yeah. t- I, I can almost 
reach out and and feel the material it's made of with how he did the tension points of that fabric, which is very difficult to get. Right. One other yeah. thing that I, I kind of want to draw attention to is I think it's very interesting that the corpse is probably the brightest figure in the entire piece in terms of illumination, whereas all of the accusing cardinals and bishops and Stephen in particular are done in very heavy shadow. I mean, even to the point where there's a very clear gradient in the uh, architecture mm. behind the figures. And I'm, I can't imagine that was done on accident. And I'm just not sure what the significance of that would be. Sorry. Once I, as you guys were talking about it, I'm going back and like reading about it and, and remembering a bunch of stuff. Anyways, it's a wonderful painting. I do love it. Yeah. It's almost, uh, it, it, it almost paints the, the deceased Pope in a divine light, right? Like he's, like uh you he's know somehow like, wrongfully accused of, of the crimes fun fact by yeah. the way he was buried so after this he was buried again and then he was exhumed again and then he was thrown into the tiber ah ah i got i got the <laughs> uh order of events slightly wrong either it, way it's, it's still absolutely bonkers uh, which Steve, is steven cut off three fingers of the right hand that he had used for blessings dang that, maybe, and, maybe and of course, being thrown into the Tiber River is the thing that, like, uh, it, I believe that's what the Romans would do to traitors, right? Yeah. Or was it? Was it? Yeah, well, yeah. They would throw traitors off the Tarpian Rock or throw them in the Tiber. Uh, yeah. Wow. They dumped the when when people were you know when when you wanted to delegitimize your imperial predecessors, right? You would uh, throw their the body the corpses from the imperial tombs into the Tiber, right? Right. Well, and so that's the thing too is that uh, the, the if entire I remember correctly, I the could entire be wrong thing on that he's being put on trial for is mm -hmm. apparently going around canon law mm -hmm. and and doing basically doing a whole bunch of things a bishop would be doing, but doing it while a layman, right? I don't know if that's true, but that's what Stephen is accusing him of doing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so cutting off the fingers that he did the blessings with, implying that those blessings were never legitimate, and then throwing him in the Tiber River all seems to sort of track with this initial charge of perjury that he performed a whole bunch of, of, uh, curial functions while being a layman. Man doing a whole bunch of, of clerical f functions as a layman. I, some, I could be wrong here, but I think that, that Etienne the sixth would not have liked, uh, the Protestant reformation. Just, <laughs> oh, I'm, oh, I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> Well, it's a good thing. I'm, I'm really glad he didn't live to see that because I feel like he would have been very upset. Uh, yeah, it's a good thing this happens in like the year 900. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we got All another right. one of Sean's coming right. up. Oh, wait, what do we got? What do we got? What do we got? Oh, boy. Oh, so this is, this is more metal album art. Uh, this As if is, the last one wasn't worthy of being on a, a metal album cover. If it's not, I'm dude. There's uh, there's so many metal bands out there. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody did use it, but they should. But anyway, so this is John Baisley. Uh, he is also he's not quite as prominent as Elrond Cantor, but he also does the circuit of doing uh, artwork for metal bands. This is from a band called Baroness, which is incredible. You should listen to them. This is from their 2009 uh album blue record uh and this is obviously very reminiscent of one of my favorite styles that is not the classical style and that's art nouveau which was like this movement in art 
uh, in the 19th century. Uh, earliest you could say is like the 1840s, but it's really like 1819 to like ni- it, you really associate it with uh, the Victorian area and then like the progressive era in America. It uses a whole lot of like floral themes and it likes natural curves and it's very flowy. Uh, if you've ever been in like a basic white woman's house, uh, inevitably you will find uh, some sort of French painting from this period that shares the style uh, as token as the style has become in the modern day in that you can like find uh, replicas of its most famous works in Hobby Lobby. I absolutely love this style. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I th- it's the, I love the natural portrayals. I love the use of blue and green. So it's an incredible piece to me. Yeah. It's, it, you know, Art Nouveau is really mostly the very late 18 to early 1900s, right? It's the the Belle Epoque, right? It's, uh, uh, you know, like 1890 up until about World War One, right? It's, uh, you know, it, it's very interesting because it's a period of, you know, the, the sort of, I mean, you could call it the height of European culture. Right. It reaches that you have these these new production techniques and they're fit into this uh, beautifully organic art form. Uh, and it has uh, lots of uh, influence, uh, you know, in the period right after it. I think you can definitely see uh, a connection between Art Nouveau and then uh, uh, Art Deco. Right. Art Deco comes comes after this and is also you know arises because of new new types of production yeah they're, um, these are both really heavily material movements they're interested in yeah. integra- they're interested in integrating art uh via the integration of like architecture and decoration mm-hmm. and so the utilization of all materials possible to combine the two and that's why there's this smooth transition between art nouveau to art deco yeah there's there's always a melancholy for me in seeing uh, Art Nouveau, uh, because it does speak to something, you know, this, this is, it's such a beautiful expression of what new, new productive techniques and new materials can allow art to do. And, uh, it comes at a time in European society where these, these new techniques are just incorporated into art, such a beautiful, beautiful way. And then, at the end of this period, you have World War One, where European society will use the same productive capacity to just put its own young men just to death on mass, right? But, well, and that's the thing uh, is, there's, and, and the colony is there. Uh, it's there in the because now that I'm thinking about it, all the Art Nouveau I see, the people in it, they always have mm-hmm. these very vacant, far away looks on them. Like mm-hmm. this one, uh, the famous F. Champenois one. There's definitely a melancholy there. Yeah, but I'm I'm just saying that in in a you know you can see it in some works where there are people who are maybe disillusioned with with modernity, right? And that's that's a, a theme that exists throughout the 19th century. But but the melancholy that I'm talking about comes from just the the knowledge that excuse me the knowledge that of how this period was going to end. Right. This is another period like we were talking about with Constant, where everybody would say, you know, you're we're so integrated economically now and we've advanced so far that there's no reason to ever have war again. War would be irrational. And then, you know, war breaks out once more. 
Don't worry. Mm-hmm. From 1914 to, to 1918, they will have the war to end all wars. Yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about. Is is right. World War One, right? right? Nobody even nobody even oh. thinks about Armistice Day anymore. But it used to be a big big holiday because you know everybody would face it, toward Paris and it, it. World War Two really kind of overshadowed that one. Yeah, it did. Well, and it became apparent that the peace of World War One set right. up World War Two, right? right. But right. But anyway, that this was the 1890s to about this point in time. You know, they they feel kind of like the 1990s, right? People call that the vacation from history, and and there's a uh, that where people thought, you know, God, all of these conflicts. Would, I, I hate that so much, though. Yeah, but it's but it's an illusion, right? That's yeah. my point. All right, so so but the the I I see the influences that you're pointing out. What's so interesting about this is the way that that as a as a painting, it takes a lot of the movement and themes from that, but puts it in a purely organic setting, right? And organic in this case, I mean one that's that's uh, not technological. It's purely physical. It involves animal and and plant life, right? Right. Oh, let's see here. What uh, what else do we got? You can't go without the classic. I think Tom. You chose this one? I did. This is one piece that I've always wanted to see in person. Um, and to go from one image of femininity to another, um, I, th- I just, honestly, this has always been very striking to me to capture cloth so amazingly out of marble. I mean, we 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 talked about the uh, talent and the skill and the old master's uh, necessary, you know, and the and the work necessary to gain this kind of skill, and I genuinely don't know if there's anyone who can do this kind of sculpture today. I mean, oh no, absolutely. There, there are some very, very good sculptors alive. It's just that sculpture of this kind isn't the most popular. Contemporary sculpture is is what's funded because that's what corporations are funding. But people who make stuff like this are, this are still definitely out there. Okay, well, I'll have to go find some. But I but mean, no. like, you know, like Michelangelo Buonarotti, it's, it's, he's the goat. <laughs> it's the <laughs> goat. Amazing that a turtle could do this. <laughs> uh, probably, I think, yeah. one of the most foundational pieces of western art i would put this right up right up alongside the laoquan it's one of the greatest marble pieces of the of the you know post-classical period this and and then you know some things by uh um uh, canova probably um though i mean there there are a bunch of really wonderful people working in marble well like i said i'm i'm not as up to uh speed on fine art certainly as sean is for the researcher, for researching for this podcast, I got I went down a rabbit hole of contemporary sculpture because I wanted to answer the question of how come every single time I walk into like some bland, crappy corporate campus or a bank or uh, just something in like downtown wherever, I see the same crappy contemporary sculpture of like you know some amorphous blob or some Mobius strip that's been like turned on itself, but it's like three D, and I actually dug in. And it turns out there's quite a few reasons. So uh, there's a, there's a number of artists, quite a few of them are in New Mexico and Arizona uh, that commit that, that get commissioned by uh, large banks like Deutsche Bank and uh, 
other corporations where uh, if they're looking for art or sculpture to tie together their lobby, it actually just really sort of makes sense for them to uh, gravitate towards contemporary sculpture. Number one, because it's absolutely inoffensive, right? You're a big bank or you're a big company and you want to draw on as many customers as possible. So you want to go for something uh, inoffensive. Uh, one of the ultimate results, though, is you once again kind of get the hipster effect where everybody is going for something that doesn't look like anything. So nothing looks like anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every corporate sculpture looks the same as the others. That's one reason why they're doing it. But also, as Larry Fink reminded us in 2015, that art is actually a great, it's an asset class. It's an incredible store mm-hmm. of wealth. He, uh, he actually, he said it's one of the best stores of wealth. And so you have this huge incentive among uh, large companies and banks to invest in a lot of contemporary sculpture, not only to decorate their offices and make them look, uh, you know, ostensibly it's to make them look more human. I think they actually make them look less human, but they all have to gravitate towards like, you know, sort of inhuman contemporary stuff. And it's also a way to uh, store wealth and also a great way to evade taxes, apparently. Uh, And I looked Mm -hmm. up some of the interesting tax loopholes they were using. So, The fact that we've moved from this, which was, you know, uh, I don't remember who precisely commissioned this, but this stuff was commissioned by like the Medici's and the papacy all the time. Uh, There's there's a book by a guy named Michael Baxell who talks about how uh, art at any given time reflects the social relationships which built it up. And during this time, you have social relationships of uh, uh, apprentices who become masters who are funded by patrons that are dedicated to the idea of increase of, you know, they're showing their largesse to increase their reputation and show how pious they are and to introduce beauty to the city around them, uh, which is decidedly more noble than the much more like pragmatic instrumental means of corporations funding sculpture today. Like this, this organic conspiracy to fill every American downtown corporate plaza with some amorphous crappy strip i find deeply tragic sorry about that rabbit hole guys <laughs> no it's <laughs> it's interesting I, I would never have known that if you hadn't brought it up i just i was reading about it last night because i was fast i i was looking for a very inorganic sort of conspiracy like who's going around pushing all these but if you look at the incentives in place and it's really just two main incentives you kind of understand why large companies and banks uh you know they wouldn't get something like Pieta because, first of all, it is explicitly religious. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, uh, they don't just have like Christians uh, opening accounts at their bank. You know, it's it's obvious they're going to gravitate towards something that's not going to offend anybody and that they can store their wealth. So I'll say that. Well, and I think it ties into like you're talking about it being a store of wealth in order to be a store of wealth, like displaying art is also a prestige thing. Right. Which we've talked about that before, like in the cultural evolution thing, that prestige is a thing that people go for. Right. And uh, as you as you have a proliferation of, you know, people who want to set their aesthetic sense apart from the aesthetic sense of hoi polloi of just random people. Right. Kind of like we were talking about how, you know, clothing gets ugly. Because it's the only way that you can set yourself apart, uh, right? You, you, you know, because because there's mass production of um, uh, really excellent, you know, beautiful looking clothing, 
uh, because of, of mass affluence, right? So you end up going for something that's, you know, like from Supreme and it looks ugly, but you know, it's from Supreme. So, you know, that it's exclusive. So it signals your prestige, you know, in the, in, in the art world, I'm not saying that it's easy to mass produce pietas or marble sculpture. It clearly isn't right. Uh, but in order to differentiate people's tastes away from what everybody can appreciate, um, it seems like there, there's an element of making challenging art. So you can say, well, I get this, but you don't get this. And so that's why I am smart and somebody who comprehends art and you, you don't like this and therefore you're a Philistine, that kind of thing. And then that bleeds over into the corporate art world because the prestige associated with those things that oh, you don't get that are very exclusive makes them desirable and therefore makes them expensive. And so you have this other parallel effect where uh, corporations are are buying things from the contemporary art world that are, you know, more or less unintelligible to the average person. Well, that's the thing um, is they have professional... Uh, as I was watching a couple of these documentaries, places like Deutsche Bank, they actually hire uh, professional uh, art purchasers that have like uh academic pasts and experience in gallery and museum curation mm-hmm. uh, there's an entire industry behind it and i do think that a large part of the the prestige software being hijacked is a call to be like, of like modernity because mm-hmm. uh look at us look how modern we are if we are willing to have uh art that is this abstract that you don't get uh, we also have access to all these modern financial techniques that'll, you know, help you make more money. I think they're definitely trying to display just how modern they are to their customers. Well, this is a masterpiece that speaks for itself. And true. I know, yeah, I, I, I know. The expression really of femininity in it. And you know, so actually, like... he kind of screwed up the foot. I'm, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> I'm slapping you through the... No. Uh, but And and it is, uh, I mean, the contrast in femininity between this and the last one, it is interesting to, to, to consider that contrast because, you know, you... Uh, on, on the one hand, you have um, the... Like the last one is obviously an aso- a feminine association with fecundity, right? Not just um, uh, not just sex, but also you know uh, the creation of life and the proliferate you know profusion of life that you saw in that one with the women and you know tons of fish and and but then in this one it's a pr- interesting because you know motherhood is also associated with the the profusion of life and of course mary is the the mother of god and the queen of heaven right but um you know in this she holds you know this is michelangelo's pieta she's holding jesus's dead body yeah this is the sixth um, this, the sorrow of mary this it's very yeah. much showing the nursing side of yeah I mean, the but, yeah. Side. yeah and so it she holds him across her lap the kind of way that you would hold a nursing infant except that that he he's been killed and uh so it, it, there's a, a juxtaposition there where you have the side of motherhood that that you know having to deal with the 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 death of your son or the mortality of your own children uh that's an entirely different symbol and in some ways a a, a juxtaposition against what motherhood usually is that exists in this painting and and yet you know so many 
women throughout history have lost their children. This this really shows the way in which um, in the incarnation, in Jesus being, uh, you know, being God and being born of woman, uh, that, you know, uh, he partakes of another um thing that that has been a, another experience that has been just a, a horrifying truth for so many people throughout history and so this gives another another example of, of sympathetic motherhood that is completely in uh, is chaste and in complete contradiction to the though you know the one we saw before and i think that's another thing that may point to the difference between uh like a, a fine art and, and some forms of popular art all right what do we what do we have next yeah oh yeah this is actually my favorite of of all of these you sent me a number of these and this one i was like oh my gosh yeah i'm a big fan of one of the reasons why like uh i mean uh, i explained already in the last eleron canter why i love him so much uh first of all his art is incredible i was showing this to a number of people whose opinions that i respect uh and i sent it to one friend and uh, she didn't respond to it for a while. And I'm like, is it okay? Did she, did she think I'm some sort of psychopath for just sending this to her? And then she just like responded back and was like, I feel this. I think I identify with this painting more than any other painting. And I think in the modern world, a lot of people feel like this. It's this giant, yeah. monstrous, rusty gear. By the way, absolutely adept use of scrumbling again. Uh, yeah. Show the rust the, on the, here. The rust and the wear that's on the gear uh, and you even see it's like you can see a whole bunch of the rust is is uh rubbed off of the nuts and you can see the sort of silver there and then just this uh mass of people being crushed underneath its weight it's a mm-hmm. very very stri- like it's super straightforward i don't think there's a lot to decode but it's just grim and to be fair it's it's done for uh it was done for a band called thy art is murder uh i would and, and this is like their their most tame album cover uh if mm-hmm. any other things i sent you guys any indication but in a way i think this is actually more i think this is more visceral visceral i think this is more despairing and i think this is more impactful than some of his more uh outwardly like explicit and violent work because this is showing something very very existential it's this massive scaring people just being crushed under this giant machine which is by the way it's very much in in line with uh his other work that was on havoc's v which is which is just the despair over technology yeah and i mean the 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 top three quarters of this painting right are this this gear and the the cylinder attached to it and, and you don't even see the machine yeah you can't see what this thing is like what is the purpose of this thing and it's just gigantic and uninterpretable and it's and it and the people at the bottom of it you know you don't see any faces it's just a mass of people in white clothing like in white robes right and you can see the tops of heads and you can see arms sticking up and the outlines of them underneath it and they're just in a gigantic mass you can see hands um and and maybe a knee right and then and and it's almost like they're drowning in in cloth and drowning in other people and then this thing is just just crushing them right there's no there's no way that being run over by this is survivable right it's unclear how anything this large could ever move 
I don't think uh, I noticed until you pointed it out, but you pointing out that the top three fifths, it looks like of this painting is the machine and the mm-hmm. idea that you cannot tell what the machine is. And it's like, mm-hmm. who cares? Why does it matter? Right. There's just mm-hmm. this machine that's completely like subsumed and taken over. Yeah. That's a beautiful observation, by the way. I mean, what, it, what I've been thinking about this a lot because it seems like, you know, one of the observations about um, modern society and about capitalism is that, uh, you know, it so many things are like outside of our control. Right. Like economics has names for some of these things like collective action problems where it's like, oh, yeah, we're burping a bunch of pollutants into the atmosphere. But if you quit emitting pollutants, then you'll lose in the price competition in the market. So everybody does it. And then, you know, you have something like and and you can mitigate that. Right. Like, you know, there we have environmental regulations and stuff now. But then if you have something like, you know, pollution that's global, like, you know, like CO2 or something like that, then, well, if one country does something, it puts them at a disadvantage. So nobody does anything, right? They and and it just continues, like you know. And and if if you're not enamored of the global warming argument, you can look at like you know Chinese smog. At one point, you know there was, I, if I recall correctly, the, there was enough pollution going into the air that it would like drift over to other countries and things like that. I don't know if they've put that gotten gotten rid of that, but. You know, the, and, and the systems that we're embedded in deliver us all these conveniences, but we have no, we don't have control over them, right? Nobody fully controls them. And, uh, and, and we've managed to last this long, but, but people feel like, you know, they're, the, the market changes and the skills you have are no longer important. So now you have no income and there's this gigantic system that you don't understand has just steamrolled you and crushed you completely. Right. Or your job requires so much mechanist, so much, you know, mechanized movement that, that the way the system needs you to, to go destroys your body. Right. And um, there are all these people who claim to understand how society works on a fundamental level, right. Marxism, neoclassical economics, you know, sociology, there are different theories of how part or all of society works. And it's, at least to me, it seems like they don't fully, you like none of them really manage to get to it. You have radical critiques and I'm like, you haven't actually grasped the root. I don't even know what the root would look like. Right. And, uh, and, and it kind of captures the, the helplessness and and unintelligibility uh, that that a lot of people feel uh, when faced with with systems that are that powerful. It's funny that you bring up uh, not funny. It's terrible that you bring up this problem of collective action because it's like you do have all these theories as to how society relates to uh, production. And mm-hmm. even the most fervent post Marxists, I've brought him up a couple of times uh, in this already. Herbert Marcuse. If you go read uh, the writings of the Frankfurt School, they all basically just presuppose that, basically, like nobody's going to stop capitalism. So how do we, basically, how do we veer it towards our own ends by taking the horns of culture? But even within these people who are absolutely as radical left as you can get, there's sort of this recognition that there's no stopping. The machine. Yeah. There's no stopping production, right? Well, and the, the the this condition comes about, especially like the the. I think it's difficult to fully understand in our time the disillusionment that accompanied the failures of the Soviet Union, 
right? First of the, you know, the, when, you know, there was a wave of it when some people realized, uh, that, you know, forced collectivization caused the, the famine in Ukraine, right? The Holodomor. And then there was another wave of it once, uh, you know, Stalinism, uh, became, you know, the, the Stalinism was repudiated and the crimes of Stalin came out in the fifties, right? After the sacred speech in 1956, the American Communist mm-hmm. Party lost uh, like two thirds of its membership within a week. Yeah, and then the the collapse of the Soviet Union in, in, at the end of this, that period is another just thing where it's like, oh, well, this you know this was the alternative that had been theorized, and then that failed, right? And there are other disillusionments, right? Like because after the secret speech, there were a lot of different things that that you know, people said, this is the sort of, uh, you know, that, that this is, uh, you know, this is the alternative, right? Like, uh, Maoism, right. And other forms of third worldism. And then when a lot of those, you know, once, once a lot of those countries gained their freedom, they, you know, didn't live up to their promise or, in, you know, there was a ton of repression. And you even saw this again with 21st century socialism in Venezuela, right? Where they were like, ah, this is, this is the new idea. And then once oil prices go down, it's like, oh no, never mind. This didn't really work, work out that well. Right. It, and every single one of these, these hopes for an alternative kind of collapses. And all you have is, is some form of thing that can, can ameliorate it. And it's unclear how well. Right. I would like to say though, that we're talking about leftist critiques of like the crisis of capitalism, but even as somebody like me, who's uh, definitely <laughs> on the right, I look at and I absolutely identify with this because I think right. all of us, regardless of what our political stance is, we can sort of look up at this machine and, you know, we can just look at it and despair. I, I think uh, the only way this painting could be more on the nose is if you just had technique scrolled across one of the yeah. So anyways, I absolutely, I, I love this. This is one of the first Elrond Cantor works uh, that I ever saw. It's absolutely incredible. So, Well, let's look at one more, I think. Yeah. All right. What do we, what do we got? What's, what's another one? Oh boy. This is a, this this is another old Tom, one. Tom selection. Yep, this, this is one of mine. And, uh, you know, every time I look at this, it's just one of those, I cannot find a single thing about this that I do not like from an artistic standpoint. Um, the anatomy, for, the anatomy drawing is, Oh, it's incredible. So for, to tell you what this is, this is fallen angel by Alexandre Cabanel. And it is a depiction of Lucifer after the rebellion in heaven. Now it, it is not a, you know, a red devil with horns, you know, wreathed in fire and, and, you know, tormenting people. No, it is, it is very clearly what is meant to be a beautiful figure. And if you look at his face, you can only see the top half of his face and really only an eye and part of his, you know, his brow and forehead. And it's not an angry face. It's, it's resentful. It's Mm -hmm. the, it's the face of, I have fallen so far, but it's not my fault. And I'm going to blame everyone else forever. Yeah. It's, it's not a hot anger, right? This is not the anger of someone who's about to punch you. This is the anger of somebody who, who wants slow revenge on you. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and I I love the the so he's he's reclining right, and his arm is in front of his face, uh, and you know some of the feathers of his wings are on the ground. He has the multicolored ring wings. He's the peacock angel, right? As you you sometimes uh, see him described, uh, or or his well, that's in some some esoteric traditions. There's he's just you you see him described as having peacock wings i'm not sure if that usually happens in christian myth but i wonder if if cabanel was familiar with that because the the wings are not white they're multicolored, right and uh yeah i would like to note by the way that he i'm looking it up now alexander cabanel did this when he was 24 so first of all tom what have you done uh second of all (laughs) not this Gavin, gavin brought up the wings I'm really impressed with the wings because, like, my favorite painting of all time is by somebody named Peter Paul Rubens, and it's uh, Prometheus Bound. And he mm-hmm. brought in an artist that specializes in wings to do the bird because, like, wings are notoriously, like, difficult to paint. And it's just this guy who does a lot of birds. And the idea that not only did, like, Alexander Cabanel did this at 24 years old, but, like, every inch of it is just outstanding. And especially... The wings. Also, wait. By the way, what was this? What did you say about him being the peacock angel? Well, uh, so I'm taking that there. There is an alternate science fiction novel where uh, uh, the um, Satan gets referred to as the peacock angel. But what that comes out of is certain Near Eastern uh, esoteric traditions, like I believe the the Yazidis refer to may may have him. Uh, portrayed as as uh being a peacock but i their their beliefs are very very um uh closely guarded so it can be difficult uh to know sometimes but uh okay i just never heard of that before so yeah where i'm getting that is that uh he he the peacock angel is a divine being in um yazidi mythology and then um so they see him as a as a positive figure. Okay. But I've seen him. I just pulled it up. It's uh, the tall, so Arabic uh, Arabic for peacock is Tolsi like Tolsi Melek like king uh, peacock, and it's a, a central uh, figure in the Yazidi religion. And now that I mm-hmm. think that I've seen a whole bunch of like Sufi references to peacock, and now I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and so I've seen it. Uh, so, so what this gets into is I've seen mm-hmm. that terminology used uh, in other things where people outside of that religion are trying to to denigrate the Yazidis as worship, worshiping the devil, and uh, that that uh, or or a fallen angel and identifying the peacock angel with that. And so I'm not trying to say that the Yazidis actually do that. I'm not making that accusation, but I'm making the connection that that perhaps the uh, Cabanel was familiar with uh, some tradition related to that uh, toward, toward making that claim about Lucifer or about how his, his, uh, uh, how his wings are, uh, are uh, multicolored. And and perhaps there is no uh, inspiration there, but it seems like it would, uh, it could be, uh, it, it could be something that, that Cabanel, uh, got a hold of simply because you know there was a lot of attempted explications of near eastern beliefs uh in the uh the the 19th century when he was working oh either it's an absolutely incredible painting so yeah
Culture Camp is hosted by Sean and Gavin. It's recorded, produced, and edited by Tom. Our opening track is The Mountains Don't Care About You by Dr. Turtle, and our closing track is Freeze Frame by Stay Loose. You can contact us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-U-R-E-K-A-M-P.cast at gmail.com to send us comments, questions, or topic ideas, as well as commenting below this video. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at culturecampcast, minds.com at culturecamp, and give us a five-star rating on Spotify. Thanks for listening.